Hello there, it's Oliver Callan here and welcome to the weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the last week. On Monday, I spoke to Owen de Vardoon, writer, activist and traveller cultural expert. We talked about his brand new book for children, The Slug and the Snail, the meaning of storytelling in his tradition and Traveller Pride Week. On Tuesday, Jack Moore, hoarding specialist and founder of Respect My Stuff, told us how he helps people who developed a hoarding problem and how to differentiate between hoarding and cluttering. On Wednesday, Dr. Tyg McIntyre joined us in the studio to explain when and why exercise becomes an obsession. Barry also joined us to share his story about running and marathons. On Thursday, debut author Colin Walsh chatted about his freshly printed novel Kala, which was the subject to a publishing bidding war. It's a cross between literary fiction and a thriller set in the west of Ireland. And on Friday, I spoke to Austin Kenny, the creator of Tape Me Away From Home, a documentary and he has the most endearing tape collection I've ever heard of. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Now, Owen de Vardoon is with us in studio and uh, I noticed Owen straight away um, as an author in your lovely book, The Slug and the Snail. Uh, and you're an award-winning author, it says on the cover, Why the Moon Travels. So it's not your first. This isn't your first rodeo, as I say. You've no fodders in the owned Vardoon. No, there isn't, because it's not in um, a Squilga. It's actually in Gammon Kent, which is one of our, our languages. Ah, OK. So it's not, so the, the traveller, the traveller's Gammon or Kent? Is this yeah, the same Gammon, thing? No, Gammon Kent is, uh, and, and under linguistic kind of research, is also known as Shelta. But that is not a term we often actually use. And it's a language that's protected by UNESCO. Oh, it is, but it has origins in Irish or is it it's connected? O- uh, old Irish and Gwadig. And actually, we have parts of our language, because I'm so fascinated with it. Like, there's words like Olami, which means the darkness of the night, which is very romantic. But we also have words like um, Cunha, which means priest, which also means druid. And it's actually found in Ohm script. Oh, really? Yeah, so in one way or another, like, most people don't realise that we, we are custodians of an old Ireland. Yeah, and it's it's great. I didn't mean to start there, by no. the way, because there's a lovely story here. Because the, the the idea of the story it has been gifted to you. Yes. Uh, can you explain? Can you yes. explain that? So within the traveling community, uh, our interpretation of storytelling comes in a bit different context. So when we say gifting of stories, you actually it comes with responsibilities. People take stories quite serious. So there's the three responsibilities. One is that. Uh, you always honour where you, the story comes from because the story isn't just a story. Like, we don't settle our stories. They're allowed to grow and change. And they also they come through the, the biases and the passions of people who actually told them before. Yeah. And the second was, no matter how fantastic it is, it's, it's told that it is truthful. You know, because there's some truth in it. And the third one is that you have the, you have the very serious responsibility to pass it on because it was a terrible thing that if someone has gifted you something, it gives you a part of them, part of their inches, their heart, yeah. and that story dies on your lips, that's a terrible loss. You have to mind it. Yes, and share it, you know, which comes with a lot of responsibility. There's a huge and rich culture to do with travellers in Ireland, yes. isn't there? Yeah. Uh, and it's not always the first point of, of No, No, when people think travellers, they think about all our issues. They actually don't think it's where people of culture. You know, and I think that slowly changing and stories like this that is actually embedded in our natural kind of our folklore and our tales and how we connect with the world around us and each other is very vitally important because chances are if you've actually read anything about travellers it's actually written by a settled person. <laughs> so you're actually not reading of anything course. about travellers you're reading a settled version of travellers. So our actual stories are connected just like in The Slug and the Snail beyond rare. Beyond you're rare. giving us the insider's uh, cultural storytelling. Yes. Uh, tell us what the what the idea is behind the slug and the snail. It is a children's book. It is indeed, and actually came from a real life experience that I had when I was a child. So I grew up in a, in a situation where tra- being a traveller was something that is beautiful and it's charming, and you're part of this ancient uh, lineage. So when I was a young child, a friend who was my close friend at the time had a birthday party, and I wasn't invited. 
and it explained to me the reason why I wasn't invited is because I was a traveller. Now, my parents took that quite badly, yeah. you know, and that night my father came in and told me the story of this look at the snail, which is about connecting and about how for travellers are the innate and original part of who we are is nomadic. So, which, you know, that's why everyone comes from a nomadic background and we're just people who continue this tradition yeah. of being nomadic and how we're actually are more similar than we realise. But like every child who has felt um, isolation or felt rejection, it does leave an impression on you. Unfortunately, mine had a lifelong impression because it came from a place of discrimination rather than connection. What age were you? Um, up for debate, I think it was between seven and nine. Do you know? I'm convinced I was a bit older than it was. My father was convinced I was seven. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a scar that you kind of, you think you carry? Very much so, very much so, because it was the first time where, that, where uh, discrimination intruded into my life. Sort of way. I was aware of you things. You had no idea that there was yeah, no, I, knew, I knew there was yeah. people being treated differently. I knew that there were certain places my parents couldn't go, you know. But the, um, it was the first time that it intruded so directly into my life by someone who I thought was a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, and I realised it was very real. So by all these years later, being able to bring the story about... And um, because this story actually should have been in the first book, Why the Moon Travels. Oh, yeah. And it just disappeared from us. That was like, a collection of stories. Yeah, yeah, based on our, our folklore. You yeah. know, uh, again, l- wonderful insight into her culture, people. Yeah. Um, but the idea would be, and it just disappeared from us. So um, Fanula and Grania actually were talking to uh, Matthew from Little Island. And they thought, well, this is the story we think ha- has potential. You know, and thankfully, they, they embraced it. And it's, it's turned into this... Beautiful, and I really like because Alia, who's the artist, really listened to me. There's the things about the early versions of the because you, you go, here's the story, and here's the insights, and then you get the the initial like, images and stuff. And I was going around going, I think this crow looks a little bit suspicious, yeah, you yeah. know. And I, I found myself like in the middle of the evening out in the back garden, with a half loaf of bread, throwing it to encourage crows to come over. So I go, do crows look suspicious? Are crows suspicious animals or something? And um, yeah, so like, she listened and she came back, and I think it was really important to. We're not creating a product, we're creating pieces and places of connection. And that's very important to me. That's a lovely idea. Because obviously the oral tradition of storytelling is throughout Ireland, yes. not just in the travel. But I suppose the, 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 that has been kept going. Yes. And we also, is we, it still we, happening now? Oh, very much so. And we also we have our own versions of stories. Like we, so if you think about even the Ulster cycle, think about Cucullin and Miaven and stuff. Yeah. They're all nomadic people. Yeah, so that's a good Yeah, so there, there are people, they're travellers. Yeah. Do you know? So, but when you only hear from a settled orbit point of view, you never get to see the other sides. And also, we've lived until very recently far closer to nature than the vast majority of the population. So, our connection to nature can be very, very different. How so, how so? Well, just say it would be the for most travellers, the idea of receiving cut flowers can be quite insulting. Really? That's why a lot of people will have artificial flowers, plastic flowers, paper flowers. Because just say, you're going, I have fallen deeply in love with you. So here's a bunch of roses. Watch them as they wilt in front of you. Do you know? So, <laughs> yeah. When, I, you put I, it, when you put it like that. Do you know? uh, yeah. So, yeah, sure. So, even the idea of like bringing people who are ill flowers that are going to wilt, you kind of go, no, no, if you're going to give flowers, give something that's potted that has living in life. It's just a different cultural way of, of engaging. Uh, are, are there different versions of kind of uh, the Cuchulain stories and oh, Sam of Knowledge? Sam of Knowledge actually is a great one. Sam of Knowledge. Yeah, okay. so at the, at the end of our story, actually, what happened is that obviously the, the, the thumb was burnt and everyone goes off, and a travel woman comes down and she's sees the bones left in, in the pot and she makes a broth out of it and she drinks it and she gets the gift of wisdom because knowledge without wisdom is inept and wisdom without the ability to apply it is inept. So the idea would be we both carry these lineages within us and until the community come back together we won't ha- ever have the restoration so, so of true knowledge and wisdom. This is a sequel we never heard. Yeah, because again, so very few people the, talked with The kid who's supposed to be minding the salmon of knowledge, yeah. don't touch it. He, yeah, burns down thumb, but he got knowledge. He, got the he knowledge. didn't get wisdom. Oh, okay, okay. But the wisdom was in the bones. Yeah, Joe, and and the idea would be that how our communities is not about we're not behind you, we're not like we're not more regressive. We're just on a different path. 
Do you know, often people think about yeah. travelers, they think that we're, we're the retrospective people, like we used to be people. They're going, no, we're contemporary, we're here, we're about, you know, but we're just, we're just viewing life in a different cultural framework. How important was 2017 then to you and your community when the, the distinct ethnicity yes. of travelers was recognized by the state at last after yeah. long, long campaign? Yeah, we usually view it as like kind of the, the end to the ethnic denial, more like because like they, they would be. Like we we all we're always seen as being different people, and we see each other as different people. So I was always confused of why this is so controversial. Um, and I think what it was, it was important. You know, it doesn't have this the legal status that which I think people should have the protections around minorities. Um, but it was a moment of maturity for Ireland to say we we, we have a complicated history, and our children are not of a mo- monocultural stas- status, yeah. and we're actually recognizing this version and this thread of the wonderful tapestry of who we are as something that we want to embrace. Uh, we kind of split ourselves on the top of the settled community yes. here into kind of tribal counties yes. as I was talking this morning about matches and so on. Uh, could, could the travellers be argued as the 33rd county? We could be and we and our version of we're less we're more connected to people than to places. So when we think about travellers I'd say who my people are I'd say they're tohers they're from, they're from the, the people here we name our family lines because nomadic people are not so gravitated towards this land. They're not from a particular county yeah, or a place. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have lineages that orbit around certain areas like my people most certainly would be from a side, no, as far as back we can kind of go for a little bit, yeah. um, but we're not as much connected to that piece of land uh, rather than going, we're connected to those piece of people. So we are a more fluent people, which is not surprising because we're nomadic. Yeah, mm. you have kind of forcing us to think in a different way about yeah. the history because the travellers have always been there. Yeah, yeah, and have always been in the community as yes. well, haven't they? Yeah, and uh, we, and we have this interpretation that we're always on the, the sidelines, and um, which is really reinvested in this idea of discrimination. I don't know about yourself. I'm in the middle of my world. <laughs> You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And um, you know, but, but the, when the common narrative only comes from the wider population, we, we lose out. You know, we we lose out. And I'm actually quite lucky that a lot of my life is is about stories and about those connections. Even from my like my day job working in the National Museum is about collecting up those stories. Like this wonderful book and previous publications. In October, we have a collection of ghost stories coming out with Scheme Press. It's called Twiggy Woman. Um, I sound like I'm plugging everything now, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> it's just you know. a slug in the yeah, snail. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> okay. But, but the, the ghost stories do sound interesting. Go yes. back and tell us about that. Um, yeah. t- but if you even look at the cover there, the slug in the snail, um, Ollie is very gifted. Like how how gifted to make something that people usually approach approach as kind of gorgeous, like, so very charming. And the gift is from your dad in yes, this case, isn't it? How important is your dad in your life? He's very deeply important, and and I think there's. My father has always used stories and the stories that he himself has inherited and was gifted as ways to, as any good parent should, to give us guidance in our lives, to give us comfort in our lives, to give us courage in our lives. Um, but also a way is to give us, I mean, this restorative kind of strength kind of going, when things go bad, I go back to stories like this. You know, the idea of like, when I, when I encourage um, within myself kind of like either defiance against a certain kind of approach to me or a sense of kind of an injustice especially one of the high levels of discrimination and alienation and stories are one of the things that and he's gifted including my parents like they're, they're all storytellers in one way or the other because we all do sell stories and like if you've ever come down kind of on a Friday morning and had a cup of tea going guess what happened last night you are a storyteller Do you know, it's just yeah. that we interpret it very different but with our community they come with a little bit more responsibilities um, what is it? Tell us that the, the, there's a stick, there's a tally stick. Oh my God, yeah. So after 20 years of telling stories yeah. and writing and on the verge of book number four, my father gifted me two things. So a storyteller staff, right, which is yeah. very, very important, but also a tally stick, which is, think about, it's about as tall as I am, it's almost six foot and it has six, six segments in it and it's four 
corners to it. So each of them are the four primary storytelling traditions that we have. The stories of sorrow, stories of joy, of adventure and of mystery. Yeah. And how you fill you actually your responsibility, and it's quite serious, is to fill the stick. So when you get a story from the north, you take a, you mark one of the sections of the stick. You put a notch on it, is yeah, it? Yeah, so and the idea is that you're not fully a storyteller until that, until that tally stick is filled. That's kind of, oh, that's, you said it's six foot? Yeah, you know, you know and he decided it when it's going and every every storyteller can, can gift one or two to other people but they do to receive it sounds like oh that's grand it's actually a huge burden in one, one way because I'm going like will I ever have this will I ever have this fixed you know, will I ever have it done but it is um, for me it was it was one of those moments where I can't really communicate the words but it was very special and important to me imagine, but, also, yeah. but also as a sense of kind of we're recognising you actually as one of the um, storytellers within our community with the responsibilities to go and gather those so it's not a passive thing it's mm-hmm. rather than I just wait here silently waiting for stories you actually had the responsibility to go off and find those stories oh, you've actively find them yeah because that's a great I, because idea because again then, the great story if a, if a story dies on someone's lips you're actually you're losing not only the story but all the parts of people that fill that story before them because the story is not my story it's a story that has grown and changed and developed through us all so carries bits of us with it Wow, yeah. um, th- what are you doing with the staff then? No, oh, so at the well, the the staff itself is just is more or less when you go to cultural events or ourselves kind of going. Yeah. This just lets you know that like I'm a storyteller, do you know? Oh, I um, see. Yeah, so it's an, it's an invitation. So an invitation, come and share. The yeah, story come and story. Like, yeah, and I'll share my I'll story with you, it. and you share yours with mine because. And while you can sit in spaces, but if you, like, to request a story, again, comes with responsibilities. And so that's why when it comes to things like the slogan, the snail, it's an invitation for people to, to share in a story, but also growing understanding and also have a bit of enjoyment. Yeah. You know, I mean, because sometimes we can hold stories as all oh, things that are greatly serious. And in fact, they can be expressions of our heart. Does, does the tally stick get competitive? No, no, it, no, no. I mean, the idea is you, it's for you to fill, Joe, you know, and like, yeah. and it's for you to remember your stories because it also is a responsibility. If you can, if you just one side is filled, is all the stories of like of adventure. Well, your storytelling is off, so it's a way of kind of kind of going, um, keep it balanced. But also, the stick itself is a geographical location of Ireland. Wow, so if you have great. something just from Kerry, you'd fill the lower quarters. So it's make sure that you're not just based in all your story around, say, for Dublin where we're currently living, because there's Dublin and there's the forest, you know, and there's a lot of stories in the forest. It's a, it's an amazing thing, and that, because I'd be there thinking I, I'm going to get a hold of all the other tally stick yeah. holders, <laughs> and we're going to get together and just get it get it all filled. What happens at the end when you've f- fully filled it? Um, you can start another one, or you can you, you can gift all those stories. So you don't expect to be an old man when it's kind of full. Oh, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be in the position. I, I think I have a long way to go before I fill it. How's it going at the moment? Um, um, well, you, you, when, you, you, when you get gifted one, you start a new, so it's not as if I can just add the old stories to it. Oh, you can't? Okay. No. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's very difficult. Yeah. But it's a thing of joy. Though. You have to seek them out. Um, you mentioned that you're involved in the National Museum of Ireland. Tell yes. us about your work there. So I am the, I am the, um, the culture, uh, uh, Trevor Culture um, Collection Officer for the, for the museum. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing job. And it's actually a little bit about stories too, because vast majority of our history any of the objects that have been located and developed have been done so by settled people and so yeah. we weren't involved in it so mm-hmm. we always come with a certain perce- perception and I'm, uh, I, I'm approaching this idea around the lines of community criteria um, engagement which means as a community we decide what we want the museum to be custodians of and how it's written about and who gets comments in it mm-hmm. but also my most fun parts of it is when people disagree about an object or a history of objects I go that is such a delight because we're, if, if everybody agrees on something chances are you're not in a community you're in a cult so when you come yes. across things that people have different opinions they go oh that's so healthy which means that like it's a part of people's identities and histories and it's something that actually is, is of great joy but also deeply needed like the, and the museum has stepped into a place of of courage you know where we're actually mm-hmm. we're saying 
while our our histories towards kind of institutions of that nature can be very critical, it's about time that we change and grow. And it's certainly it's something that certainly the people um, are embracing. And long may it continue. What are the objects that you think are most important to have in the National Museum? I think there are objects that the community the, ourselves decide rather than a few people within the mm-hmm. museums. And that's a very tricky process because we haven't really been asked historically. Until now. Until now. So, so people so what are had the, what, what, what was the Settled Community's version of the important objects? Um, a lot of it would be a style around a tinkership, which is not, not a surprise, but also that, that only usually used to manifest as men only. Believe it or not, kind of like women can pick oh, right. up hammers. I know, there was a women yeah. <laughs> um, So even that, or then a lot of things of our, how, we, how the, our community intersected with the wider community. So things like some of the, some of the trades or the flowers, rather than our just day-to-day items, like we we're just people like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was styled around our social role as travelling people who were tinsmiths, rather yeah. than this very wide, like, expressive cultural embodiment of where we're a part of Ireland. That tinsmith um, crafts yes. uh, skill that obviously uh, led to the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. known as the tinkers because yes. they would travel from place to place and that was the primary interaction with the settled community I'm imagining. Yeah, it was. Um, what's, so, so are they, was it always repairing kind of pots and pans or was there more to it than that? Oh, I mean, it's a lot of repair. We're like, we were on the original renewers. Like we, we repaired and we were part of the, you know, the green cycle as they call it now. Yeah. Um, but also there's a lot of craft and a lot of redevelopment. The people design their own side of pots or kind of my, even my jewelry I jewelry, wear, yeah. like you know, so you're wearing me, yeah. a lot of showy jewelry. Oh yeah, you know, I wear it all the time. But these are made from stones. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like the idea would be when we just that's think all people, your jewelry. I, I, I hope oh, oh, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It isn't. Um, but the idea would be like because even the, the the term tinker um, within our language uh, we were minkare or minkari, mm-hmm. and to mink is also is to because our, our version for the word for hand is mala, which is bag bag asquelga. Yes, because we carry things. Um, but it was minkare was people who craft. So we, uh, as a way of we identifying ourselves, we were the people who made things. Yes. You know, and we were people who developed things. And I think that with the, with the change in the also, I mean, the socioeconomic kind of principles and the you know, world developed in different ways, we lost some of our social role. And then that's so, and so we were ostracised and pushed out. And the idea of like what use of youth was, rather than where, where people were used to each mm. other. The and interactions yeah. dried yeah, up. Yeah, didn't yeah it would, would have been. And then it's, it's easier, I think it's very easy to dislike and have hatred towards a principle it's very difficult to hate a person you know mm-hmm. yes so, it is it's very, you know, and, and we lost a lot of that connection and that festered in people and festered in society where discrimination even now unfortunately is very very commonplace you know and it's still very allowable here in Ireland but there is a slight shift and I think the only way that it would continue is like, like through the mediums of books like this The Slug and the Snail um, is if we reconnect to the world, again mm-hmm. as people on the levels of empathy and, and a shared history. I think you, you really expressed it strongly when you said that when we hear the settled community that is when we hear about uh, travellers it is about problems and issues yeah. and it's also again written and um, reported on by the settled community yeah. uh, so this will change things. I like the idea that it's going to be in the National Museum of Ireland it's over Mayo is it the Museum of, uh, yes. of Country Life I mean, that must be hugely important because we other travellers so much that it's almost as though you're not from Ireland. Yeah. Isn't yeah, and then they would be, most people have a, have a, like a traverse story and an interpretation of the story of our history. And I love those because guess what? We have settled people's stories and they're great. right? Um, and they're just, just as wild as every traverse story you've ever heard. Well, well, what, what do you mean? Well, just think about kind of going like, as a good friend of mine would often say, he's like, no traveller ever started a war. <laughs> 
That's a good point. That's yeah. a really good point. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so, so, or so, went to war yeah, might be the oh, no, retort. No, we definitely went to war. Definitely went to war. Yeah, there's a long history, especially with the McDonald's there and Nav and long, long history of Travers being part of kind of those structures. You see, I'm learning. I'm learning so much from you. So imagine what you could learn more, especially younger people could learn from things like this because I think that as we get older, I mean, ideas can solidify in our minds. It can be, again, we can come strangers to each other. But I think it's younger people that have that ability to cross those voyages because we don't know the difference between a traveller and settled person to only someone who's a friend. And the slug and the snail just does it so beautifully yeah. and uh, innocently in a way, isn't it? It's just, a, it, it's a nice door into the culture. What, when will your, um, as cultural collections officer, when will you actually have Exhibitions built and ready for us to. to um, well, we're currently in the in the in in, in the process of it. There, mm. there are there. I mean, there's items coming all the time. Actually, it's the, brand the, new. Yeah, it's brand new. And it, like one of the items most recently um, that we acquired and was gifted by the community, which is like again, we're not, we don't have a very high level of um, object history because the nomadic people either is deeply important or you leave it behind you. No, because you can't carry everything with you. Because oh, you know, right. so yes. again, some objects some have a different have to be made. And sometimes objects have multiple versions of life. So like a spoon is never a spoon; it'll do ten things. Um, but it was the shackles from um, Nan Joyce and Minkar Mishli from the eighties, which is forty years old now. Um, it was used in the political engagements from the first Traver only uh, grouping in order to challenge some of the policies, and that was gifted to us recently. And the shackles were used. Yeah, where people would literally chain themselves to um, to um, town halls and stuff in order to be heard. Yeah. And, and people don't realise as well especially around that period is that especially the families like the Dunahoos and stuff who were living in Tala um, they left Tala because of tensions in Tala about Travers went to Glen Road in, Glen Road in Belfast in the area of high sectarian tension because yeah. it was safer for them it was safer in was Belfast safer. And the yeah. so most people don't because so when we think of history think we think from a very settled north point of view rather than Travers we're here too we just see the history a little bit different and we experience you, it differently you do. and then that's that's a really exciting invitation because I'm constantly learning new things because you know, again like where do we get this history chances are yeah. our stories and verses of it were being told by a settled person about us so not really Travers stories or actually settled people's stories about Travers there, there's an alternative view in our own yeah. land yeah, with you, our own people you know, and, and that, that diversity of thought and idea is beautiful Brilliant. The Slug and the Snail, it's published by Skeen Press and Little Island. It's mm-hmm. available for pre-order now on littleisland.ie and it's going to be out on Thursday. Oh, it's been launched in the Gutter um, Bookshop in Temple Bar. In Temple Bar. Yeah. Brilliant. Own de Vardoon, thank you very much for joining us. And thank the you. best of luck with it. Thank Thanks you for teaching much. us. Thank you. This is Back after these. Now we're going to discuss the issues of hoarding or cluttering in people's homes and how helpless they feel as they gather and hoard. On the line is Jack Moore. Good morning to you, Jack. Good morning, Oliver. You have a social enterprise that that can help these people. Respectmystuff.org. What can you tell us about it? Well, it started uh, three or four years ago now and it was a result of uh, following years of training, uh, training housing associations, local authorities, councils, social workers, etc., on how to deal with hoarding, there was a demand then for a social enterprise or a company to come in and actually deal with the whole thing because it takes time. And unfortunately, when we're talking to the professions, whether it be a housing officer or a council officer or a social worker, they don't have the time. So that's how we set up Respect My Stuff, the de-hoarding side of the company. Yeah, no, it's a great idea and I'm delighted to see that it's working well and we're going to come to that in a minute. But how, how does one get into an area like this, like hoarding, in your role? My background was in housing, in, in social housing, and this is going back many years. And I used to, I just used to find it intriguing. Uh, it, it was, 
you know, going back 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was no one really, you know, truly understanding it or dealing with it properly. It was um, really, you know, sort of dependent on the person uh, and how they would actually approach it. There was no sort of set methodology, no uh, real research. So it was, uh, as I used to find them intriguing. Um, I had success with some and failures with others. And I decided then eventually that someone needs to really specialize in it. And that's where I did the research, did the, um, the you know, the sort of the practical side. And um, yeah, it, it really stemmed from there. And so most of your work is now in England, isn't it? But you're originally from Northern Ireland. Originally from Northern Ireland. Yeah, family in the South as well. And the, yeah, so I've been working in England uh, four years. But, you know, the training that I've, I've done, so much training in Dublin, Galway, Limerick, you know, even more recently uh, on uh, hoarding. It's it's interesting. Yeah, so I set up the community interest company in the southwest of England, where I am now actually speaking in Bristol today. Um started up uh, several years ago and you know there's still there's definitely the demand for it in um uh, in Ireland I actually do have a team in Northern Ireland uh, based in Belfast and that's very mm-hmm. successful and uh, I, I just know from the training that I've done with environmental health and social workers etc in Dublin South Dublin Dublin City Council uh, Meath County Council that there is the demand for it. It's just unfortunate hasn't really started there. Wow. Um, I'd love love to start in the south. Yeah, uh, the, I suppose the issues for county councils, isn't it, and social housing is, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering why county councils and uh, you know the, the the owners, I suppose, of social housing hire your company to help hoarders. Yeah. Uh, simply because they can't judge, they, they don't at the time. The typical case, Oliver, would be two de-hoarding practitioners trained up by myself going in and working with someone who's hoarding for three hours a week, either, you know, a morning or an afternoon every week for 10, 12, 14, possibly even more weeks, really getting to know that person, build a rapport with that, that person, you know, get that sort of trust for that person and slowly but surely working with them to make the place safe, first of all. The biggest yeah. risk really is fire. So fire risk, you know, to um, to, to minimise the trip risk, the avalanche risk, and then working with them over that period of time eventually to get them to be able to let go of stuff. You can't do it overnight. And unfortunately, housing officers, council officers, environmental health officers, they just don't have that time. So that's really where we come in. And it is, it's interesting because some of your, uh, some of the people, the tenants of, of social housing, they need to go from hospital back home and they can't, they're going to be stuck in the hospital unless there's room. So that's where you guys come in and, and clear the place for them. Well, that, that's only one, that's really one small part yeah. of the service we provide. The, the main service is the, what we call the de-hoarding, decluttering, which is over a long, long period of time. However, we've uh, been working with some of the hospitals, mainly in, in the south of England, and and that's been really successful where there's, you know, that old expression, bed blocking, where someone is in, whether it be a stroke unit or, a, a you know, a ward and they're in it, but they could easily, you know, they, they are ready for discharge. Yeah. But sometimes they stay on for weeks, months uh, because 
they can't actually access their home. So we will go in and unlike some organisations might just go in and clear the whole thing or maybe even the hospital might have an in, in, in-house team that will just go in and clear the whole place and get rid of everything. We don't. We'll go in, we'll sift through. We'll, uh, if anything is, you know, beyond use then that will go but anything that we think is of maybe sentimental of financial value maybe of even you know personal papers we'll sift through we'll keep them maybe put them in a bedroom whatever but we will clear a room uh, for maybe a hospital bed to go in there so so hence the name respect respect my stuff jack hoarding and cluttering is there a difference between the two there is very much so, uh, Oliver. Uh, to tell you the truth, they, they both they can look uh, present exactly the same. What we use is the a, a, a what we call the clutter image rating, which is a series of photographs from um, one to nine mm-hmm. of the same room, different degrees of of, of clutter or hoarding. Uh, one being the best, nine being the worst. So we use that. So if you had a you know a, a, a room that looked um, like a, a number nine. It could look. Um, it could either be cluttering or hoarding. The big difference is, probably the easiest way to explain it, is if the person who is living with all that stuff has a disproportionate attachment to that stuff. Uh-huh. You know, they might they've got broken bits and pieces. No, don't touch that. You can't take that. That that tissue. Yeah, that can be used again. If they've got this sort of disproportionate attachment, then we're probably looking at hoarding. If it's built up and these sort of seven, eights and nines, the really serious stuff. Mm, stuff built, it's in up the to the ceiling, isn't it? And there's no mo- using the Absolutely, room. Absolutely. But that can build up. That can either be through hoarding or it can just be built up through, you know, if someone is incredibly, let's say, depressed and they just they can't they, they, they haven't got the energy, the motivation to do anything. They can't put the bin out. They don't bother washing. They don't bother cooking. They, they buy stuff in and they just can't be bothered taking stuff out. It can build up and build up and build up. And we've got we've got several, you know, eights and nines that actually look like hoarding, but they aren't hoarding. They are extreme clutter. Uh-huh. Are there any early signs that someone might be a hoarder? It can it can start from a very very early age, and you know when you think of it, you know if, when I'm doing my training, you know I, I use the the example, you know most of us have got that kitchen drawer, haven't we? That is absolutely full of stuff. Yeah. You're probably never use, but you still you find something, you think oh, I'll put that in the kitchen drawer that'll come in useful one day. So if you imagine that in a much much you know that that's the kitchen drawer that's probably come off its rails, but if you imagine put that into the whole sort of house situation or the whole flat situation, uh, that's it just it takes over. So, you know, it it's it's keeping an eye um on people, whether it be a family member or someone else that you think, you know, might be just building this stuff up. So people can people can collect, people can 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 fill their house with stuff and it doesn't become a hoard. It becomes a mm-hmm. hoard when they it starts to interfere with their daily life. They can't use the bathroom, they can't use the kitchen, they can't use the hob, the cooker, because this is just full of of of, of stuff. Um, and that's where it becomes hoarding and a problem. And it's also where you come in. It can give us an overview of some of the cases you've worked on. Uh, Bruce, for example, is, he's in a wooden bedroom, first floor council flat. That's right. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting case. You, you literally. So what we will do is our two practitioners will go in, be introduced to Bruce, maybe by the housing officer or by um, social worker. 
and we will start you know working with that person and the main thing what we try to do is especially if they if we understand and and can um find out very quickly that they maybe are genuinely hoarding um, if they are, then we're talking and, and we're talking mental illness there as well. You can't get away from it. Yeah. And um, so we won't be said because they'd be very and, and Bruce was a proper um, hoarding case, uh, mainly books, hundreds upon hundreds of books and um, hundreds of pieces of clothing from charity shops, even with the, the little tags still on them. He was just, you know, wow. he, he was like, obsessed Um uh, with that and what we didn't want to do was start saying look Bruce you know we need to take stuff away so what we did was because it was so cluttered and and um, I think I explained that the the living room itself was you couldn't get through the door to the living room it was oh. over six foot high in just you know stopped and it was the whole way through the living room you couldn't see the window at all so what we did was we decided um, after a week or two that there was just there wasn't even a room enough room for two people to be in there so we suggested to Bruce that we would actually um, not get rid of his stuff but actually move his stuff into storage just for a while right. so that we could get this the way he wanted it and then we would then work with Bruce over this longer period of time to bring back from storage once we had the place sorted and looking really well and cleaned and be able to use all the facilities, um, we would uh, bring things back that he actually needed. Not, you know, he because he, he, he could have said, oh, I want everything. It just yeah. wouldn't have worked. It was gently just, done. It was, it was very gently done. It was, it was, it was quite experimental, actually, uh, Oliver, because yeah. it's, it's, it's not a thing that we would normally do. However, it really worked in that, I suppose, the old expression, out of sight, out of mind um, over that longer period because he, he eventually got back to the way he could see through the windows. We cleaned the windows. He could use the bathroom. He could use the kitchen. He could cook. He had a lovely antique sort of um, writing desk that he hadn't seen for years. He was able to use that. And in the end, he we went with him and we brought back a few bits and pieces that he really wanted. And in the end, he said, look, just everything, please. Can you take it to charity? And he mentioned the different charities that he liked to go to. And that's what we did. And wow. he's, he's and then some people say, oh, that that's, you know, too quick. And it wasn't. It worked really well. He's now, what, nine months, 10 months later, still thoroughly enjoying his, 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 his newfound um, sort of, you know, a, a very, very smart person, incredibly yeah. intelligent uh, and, and interesting and just, you know, so thankful with, with, with what we did. No, that, that's no relapse there. Yeah. No relapse, no. And it's an interesting case because you had said the council spent thousands helping him clear stuff over the years, uh, but obviously it was just constantly building back up again, whereas you went in and for a couple of months and uh, this is feels like it could be the end. Well, absolutely. This, this was, and, and the council were delighted. In fact, it was um, Winchester City Council in Hampshire, and we did. They, they, they've been very proactive in dealing with hoarding over the last, um, just over the last sort of year, mm -hmm. and we've been uh, working with them on a pilot, and they were able to measure and find out the cost that they actually had spent on particular cases up to then you know, through their asset management, through their repairs, through their, um, you know, gas safety checks, et cetera, the amount of, of housing officer time as, as well. And that had got into tens of thousands, many really? tens of thousands of pounds years. 
and then we came in and I think ours was round, maybe round about the three and a half, four thousand pound okay. uh, um, stage, and that it was just a, it was like ten percent what they had actually spent on it, and we got the result. We can understand uh, that wasn't the why councils like this particular business. Then, um, how do you yeah. uh, how do you convince a client who's disproportionately attached to stuff? How do you convince them to let it go ultimately? It's through working with them through reasoning with them through questioning you know with them you have to remember these for many of the the, the people who are hoarding they live a very lead a very solitary life they don't necessarily mix they don't have people into the property they don't have people um they just don't want anyone in there and that's connected um, to their hoarding is it because they're they're ashamed they're embarrassed oh, about the situation I'd say virtually, even though people sometimes they come over as being very, we're, we're talking, if we're talking about genuine hoarding, you're most of the time, and, and the vast majority of the time, you're talking about people, not even of like this average intelligence, they are smart, they're very well read, we come from incredible, interesting backgrounds, and every person is different, and it's actually getting through to that person and reasoning with them and maybe you know let's let's say you know we have cases where someone might have kept their um they could have paranoid about keeping every receipt every uh maybe they've 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 worked in business before and they know they have to keep invoices they have to keep receipts they have to and they keep them for 30 40 years that that can take up so much you know space and what we'll say to them is look there's only a certain amount of years that you actually have to even though you don't even have to because now you're retired or whatever and uh, uh you know and and so we'll re- and we'll say look how about that the other 30 years that you don't actually have to let's you know recycle those shred those or whatever and we'll just keep the last sort of six years or whatever it is you have to we have to keep it's just even little things like that mm-hmm. where they they, they 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 understand. They say they are smart. They understand. It's just that no one has had that opportunity to have those conversations. In some cases, we would look at cognitive behavioural therapy, mm-hmm. but to be honest, which is just a, you know a talking therapy, and it has proved very successful, uh, very much in the in the in the states as well, um, and it has proved successful. However, it's very difficult. The only way that it can be successful is if the therapist who is trained not just on general sort of therapy around, you know, general mental illness. They need to be trained and experienced around OCD and hoarding. And that's quite difficult to get those speciality uh, uh, people in. But even then, it's getting them to go into the person's property. Because sometimes, you know, there can be filth, there can be all sorts of stuff. They'll say, no, no, I, I won't go in there. So us working in pairs with the person who's hoarding and building that rapport in a way we're doing that therapy as we go through those uh, three hours a week for you know three four months we're doing that already and, and the gradual process of clearing out the house obviously helps them uh, not relapse because it is a gradual thing and they, they become and get used to it basically that's the that's the kind of success point you want them to reach isn't it Yes, absolutely. Jack Moore, it's been a pleasure and a fascinating conversation and I wish you well in your endeavours. Thank you very much. Thanks a million. Good morning, Jack. Respectmystuff.org.uk, that's the website. Uh, 51551, that's the text. 
And you're all very welcome back. Uh, Dr. Tyg McIntyre is in studio. Good morning, Dr. Tyg McIntyre. Yeah, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Sports and exercise psychologist. So you're very much on top of this topic, aren't you, of people who, you know, doing the healthy levels of exercise and then it becomes something else. And we've, well, well tell us, has there been an explosion or because it, anecdotally it feels like people are doing way more gymming than they used to? Well, it's really interesting because actually, and I hate to mention the word COVID, but during COVID lockdown scenarios, we actually went outdoors for exercise. Mm-hmm. So what we call green exercise, physical activity in, in natural spaces. For example, Quilcha numbers for their parks tripled in many parks wow. during lockdown. Yeah. And that was typical in, you know, in North America and across Europe. And what's happened since is the return to the gym, although the numbers in green spaces have been maintained. And part of this issue with return to the gym is perhaps motivated by, you know, uh, so, some of the weight we might have put on during uh, COVID times. Yeah. Because, you know, doctors and epidemiologists are aware that non-communicable diseases uh, were, were at a higher risk from the lockdown scenarios. So, but if you're a young person and you've been, you know, taken away from your gym and social sports structure during lockdown, um, going to the gym and trying to get your physique back is... Probably a good thing. And I yeah. think that's, you know, predominantly we're trying to say exercise is good for you. But I'm in perhaps not the majority of uh, researchers who say, actually, there's some caution we should have. Mm. Part of that caution is uh, too much, uh, the wrong type of exercise, only one type of exercise. And this issue, what we call um, exercise addiction. Now, to be clear, exercise addiction isn't something which is, uh, you know, strictly diagnosed it's based on a behavioral addiction criteria and what we look at is you know in terms of uh, frequency and but it's really defined by two things one is you know an excessive concern for the routine itself okay like the pattern i have to do it in the morning i have to do it in the evening has to be at this time and evo- and the second component we're typically looking at is severe withdrawal so even missing one workout can change somebody's mood drastically. So they're... Punishing themselves for not having done the, the big the big workout. Yeah, and, and look, right now we know there's a lot of emotions come with exercise. You know, everyone feels a degree of stress and anxiety before the exercise, even during it for the first 10 or 15 minutes, or if it's high-intensity exercise, you might feel that throughout the exercise. And we know what, you know, has been colloquially referred to as the exercise high, so positive mood afterwards. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a kind of really key emotional component here. And this this, you know, should resonate with those who exercise, right? We, we mightn't always feel good when we start it. We should feel good when we, when we finish it. But is it simply stress relief or is it enhancing our quality of life? Because if it's only reducing the kind of anxiety we had beforehand, it's not so good. If it's making us feel better, connect with others, has all multiple psychological benefits, even helps us sleep better. Sleep is a good indicator of, of well-being. Right. Then, then it's good for you. And if it's not, you should, you know, at least have a, have a chat with a professional or uh, a fitness trainer or somebody that can try help you around it. Because, you know, exercise has many, you know, benefits and co-benefits. And that's a really important thing. So if somebody says, I only exercise because of one motive, that's really of concern for me. And really? I, so I, A lot of people say, I need to lose weight, I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah, you, and you, you've are straight away thinking, oh, red flag. Yeah, de- definitely yellow flag. So okay, flags right. isn't quite okay. good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. we might even finish with a green flag today. Um, but let's say the yellow flags would be: I only have one motive, 
And that's a challenge because with the one motive, that means you're, if you don't achieve that goal in the short term, you're, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to you know, start to question and you most likely drop out. Now, so remember with exercise, we've got a lot of people who drop out or don't persist with training. And we've got a minority perhaps who um, regulate their training to, to such a level that it's of concern to us because it impacts on the other areas of their life. Well, it becomes their priority, doesn't it? And yeah, saying it, I mean, it overtakes their whole life. So I spoke to one of my uh, friends yesterday who's a fitness trainer for 20 years and I said, have you come across this? And he, he, he described scenarios in which it was there. And I think the key point for him was, does it pay the bills? What if it doesn't pay the bills? It shouldn't be the predominant focus of your time. And I said, well, actually, the psychological impact is much more of concern as well. Because, And he understood that because, you know, if this diminishes your relationships, if this diminishes your connection to others, if this leads to what we call comorbid or co-occurring issues around anorexia athletica, which is the sporting version of anorexia nervosa, if it leads to depression or or the experience of other forms of psychological distress. And I would say we have to look at a compassionate eye upon people about this because people don't choose to be exercise addicted. And, and mm-hmm. w- one of the ways that, that can happen is if something traumatic happens in your life, and this is, you know, when people initiate, often initiate exercise on the, on the basis of a li- stressful life event, they find one way of coping. And that one way of coping could be through exercise. Typically what we call in like endurance activity, which has a, a low skill to effort ratio. And in that activity, you can persist at a long time and you can maintain a, a routine around it. Like you can't have the same routine around playing squash or football with your mates. I see. Because yeah. it's dependent upon other people. Yeah. So, But if you're on your own, you can suddenly set your agenda. And that's the... the, the is, it, is it... So people who go to the gym multiple times a day, spending several hours there, it becomes their kind of centre of social, their social hub and everything. Well, that's actually not too bad if it's yeah. a social dynamic. Because if you have a social motive, um, a fitness motive, a body image motive... There's more than one motive. Yeah. Okay. It's about having mul- multiple motives. Uh, you know, I think that's key to understand. And by the way, uh, Tag, I want to say we will, we'll take listeners' questions of this. There might be parents out there thinking of, of young people in their house, for example. 51551 is their text number. What are those warning signs, by the way, that parents could look out for uh, with, with young men and women? Yeah, I, I, would say, I would say it's about having conversations about how often they go to the gym, if they're doing exercise alone, but actually... Um, about how the athletes view themselves and their own bodies. Mm. If they're constantly looking in the mirror or worried about their weight, uh, weight concerns, you know, should not be something that adolescents should be so concerned about if on, they're on the lower end of BMI. If they're on the higher end of BMI, there's medical advice they can seek. So I think this is important that they understand that, you know, it, it's not important to have a six or eight pack when you're, you know, 14 to 20 something because yeah. your your body's changing so quickly. And you do see young teens, don't you, out running and, and so on, which I'd never seen before. That seems to be a new enough phenomenon. They're, they're, they're younger and younger in gyms and uh, uh, running basically, aren't they? Yeah, and uh, actually I would have more concern actually um, about exercise which is done in isolation because then you don't have the moderating impact of your peer group or of a trainer in the gym of, or of others. So when somebody does like an endurance sport, it could be, could be running, for example, that, that's often a high risk factor. You know, if somebody tells me they initiated a sport and I go, that's really good. What, what sport is it? And they say running. I'm like, are you running in a group? Are you running outdoors? Are, are you running in nature? Are you uh, doing other forms of exercise? So actually one of the keys here is, the, the parents should be concerned if their kids only do one type of exercise. Okay. 
Because you should have a rainbow of exercise. So blue, which means something close to water, green in natural areas. You should have something which is done in a social setting and something perhaps done individual. So the rainbow of exercise, you know, is key to maintaining you know, a long-term healthy habit. That's an interesting idea. And again, you're kind of around people so they can sort of ask, are you okay if you're if someone is in the gym all the time or doing one particular thing all the time? Um, is there something else going on then in people's lives with those who are suddenly become addicted? Not suddenly, but gradually or... or yeah, yeah and it can, it can be quite sudden, to be fair. I mean, this is... Um, we typically say this associated with uh, high levels of, of, of inexperience of psychological distress or high levels of anxiety. And the other anxiety we're particularly acutely aware about right now is what we call social physique anxiety. How you feel about your body image. So the scrolling on Instagram um, and, and, and TikTok, mm. this presents body images which, you know, even elite athletes, unless you're Ronaldo, very rarely actually have, you know. Yeah. Uh, and what you have to understand is they're, they're not attainable by most of the population. These are professional athletes who've been doing this for 15 to 20 years with professional advice. So a 14 to 18 year old is, is probably not going to be able to do this solo, which actually comes to something key. Okay. Seek professional advice. You know, when our 16 year olds and 17 year olds want to learn how to drive, we get them lessons, right? Mm. C- connect them with a professional. It's actually a really good idea. That's because, a lovely analogy. You know, it, it, it's, it, we wouldn't let, let them drive the car without any advice. Let's not them let them initiate something which has benefits, but some risks. Let's make sure, you know, perhaps they might have to speak to somebody who's got nutritional expertise, uh, somebody who's an expert in uh, physiology or a personal trainer, or speak to their coach. If they're connected with a team sport, again, athletes often map their training onto others. So that becomes a kind of capping of their training, the threshold which they don't go above. We're getting the messages in already. Um, someone says, I'm really worried about my friend, never heard of anorexia athletica. Do you want to explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, I mean, this is the issue in, we, we learn these lessons from elite sport, in elite sport where people uh, do endurance activity. Mm. The coaches really like people that have low BMI, so, you know, a, a low percentage body fat, for example. And what actually can happen in certain cases, and this is, been documented over several decades is this can lead to excessive concerns with uh, body image and this leads to an eating disorder anorexia uh, athletica is the one specific to athletes mm-hmm. and you know the the bad news is uh, one of the what we call secondary consequences or tertiary consequences of um, exercise addiction um, is uh, a psychological disorder and that this particular psychological disorder has a high degree of mortality. So it's a huge concern. Wow. Um, anorexia nervosa and anorexia athletica are most, the most, the most profound psychological disorders. Now they are treatable, but this means you need expertise, you need to seek professional help. Mm. And this is kind of the long-term risk of exercise addiction, is that, you know, we're looking at depression and other, what we call comorbid or co-occurring um, symptomatology. So we're not just talking about, you know, worrying about Johnny or Sarah going to the gym too often. We're worrying about this in the longer term. Mm-hmm. And, and food as well, obsession over food and yeah, nutrition. And, and, and look, actually, you know, there's a there's a obsession over food from a sustainability uh, perspective, which I'm all for at the moment yeah, as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's there's, there's a, a planetary health uh, a dietary initiative as well. So look, concerns around food um, can manifest or um, can represent the same issue through an obsession, through obsessive concerns with the ritual for food, the ritual for 
um, counting for, calories for, for, and nutrition. Exactly. There's a text in here, <clears throat> sorry, a text in here from a principal of an old boys school. He says, can you ask Tig if you can help with young people, secondary school youngsters spending excessive time in the gym, not getting involved in any outside or team sport. They're spending three to four hours every evening in the gym. It now has become more important than school study and everything else. A huge problem, especially in boys schools. Uh, parents at the wits ends, not against the gym, but when it becomes excessive. This is exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, this, this is part of it. And it's not that everyone there has you know, exercise addiction or is manifesting the symptoms. But the risk is there. The potential for that to become a maladaptive behaviour is really uh, problematic. And this is whereby ensuring that there's a blend of exercise, that there's recovery. So the most important stimulus, and I'm not a physiologist, but stimulus, uh, you know, for change in terms of physiology would be exercise. But recovery is the other side of that. So are they doing a recovery workout? Are they doing a walk uh, in, in the outdoors or nature, which we know has additional benefits to being in the gym? Mm-hmm. Are they even going an exercise bike to do light aerobic training to recover? So this pattern of only doing, you know, high intensity Same gym thing. work, yeah. is, it's not the full menu. And so they're, they're on their they're, own. They're missing something, yeah. Um, what about, you, you're concerned about the language around these endurances and these challenges and things, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned um, with, you know, this, uh, I, I guess, the language we use to describe two, two things. One is, you know, gym-based training, right? Mm. And that language is, you know, uh, you know n- never give up ever. You know, all the signs that we see in our local uh, gyms, if you, you frequent them, I do recommend it occasionally. But, <laughs> you know, the, the language we use there is one, it's, it's, it's not forgiving. And that's not how sports should be. In fact, the... the the definition of an elite athlete is somebody who knows their limits. Yeah. And that the language we use for training is often one in which there are no limits. And I think what we have to understand is there are limits and knowing your limits is actually a really important part of having a long-term healthy exercise habit. Great. Uh, I want to go to Barry Catherley, who's on the phone. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Oliver. How are you? Not so bad at all. You're a member of the Dublin Bay Running Club and uh, you're, you're an exercise nut. Is that the best way to put it? Or uh, are you more than that? Pretty much, I was listening to the show there, and uh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of a lot of sense there in what you're saying. Uh, um, do you recognise yourself in any of the descriptions? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a marathon runner. Um, I train twice, three times a day. Um, just came back off a hundred mile weeks, two weeks in a row, really? and walking about thirty miles a week. So, like, I think it's there's a lot of sense in what you're saying. Um, and I think like you know, sitting here listening to it, I'm kind of going, oh. Well, for me, it's about what you're using running for. And, like, I have different runs. I use medita- meditation as one of them, and I I'd run and meditate as I'm going, and different pace runs and going to trail runs and different type of activities. Um, and then the walking, I, you know, I, I leverage and do a lot of studying um, and do, like, advanced diplomas as I'm walking. So, like, you can mix and blend different aspects of it um, and try and like use running as a different coping mechanism, but blend it in with different topics as well. And Ty- I find that really works for me, you know. Tiger's nodding along to this, Tiger. Yeah, I mean, that's a lovely experience. And what you described is more like, you know, given your experience, obviously, you know, this is like a, a, an elite kind of way of managing your resource. Like some of your rec- running is recovery. Great to hear some of it's green exercise in the outdoors and some of it in which you're like the walking whereby you probably listen to podcasts and different things. So it, it, it meets different goals. I mean, that's the key thing. Yeah. So what we do in terms of physical activity and exercise should meet different goals. If it does, well, then it can be very beneficial and adaptive to us. Where I have yeah. concerns is when somebody says, you know, 
I do the same thing. It's repetitive. It's the same exact workout multiple times per week and even sometimes multiple times per day. As I say, free, mm-hmm. said earlier, frequency actually isn't in a way to define this. It's actually mm-hmm. about the concern with the ritual. Um, yeah. and, and I look, thank you for sharing because that's a really interesting experience that you have this blend, which is exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. How did you start out running, Barry? Uh, I started about 11 years ago. Um, my mum passed away uh, and I did a marathon for charity. Mm-hmm. And then I just became addicted. So I've ran 179 now, um, about to run the 180th. Um, so I have 200 marathons in sight this year, hopefully. 180 um, marathons? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Right. That's, that's quite yeah, a bit, so, all right. Uh, yeah. And you're heading for the 200. Uh, I'm did, heading for the 200 this year, yeah. Did it help yeah. you um, cope with the grief of losing your mum? Massively, and I didn't realise it at the time. Um, I never ran in my life before, and I remember just going out for a 5k run, um, and the benefits that you get from it, like not just from like uh, health-wise, but from mentally, um, it really helped me pick me up. Um, and it gave you sort of focus, drive and determination uh, just to get, you know, I suppose, just get going, really. Um, but what I get from it is, is, like, I have to train twice or three times a day. My head will be all over the place. I get up at five, uh, do my run. Um, I probably do about nine or ten miles, mm-hmm. then do three at lunch, and then do three uh, in the evening. Um, and I, I run for different reasons, like, um, but for me, the main thing is it gives me clarity, um, especially in the morning me focus um, and then in the evenings then it's more just a bit of fun right the lunchtime runs a bit of fun as well mm-hmm. um, and then I get out at the weekends and do my marathons meet new people um, and like broaden your perspective on life in general yeah right? I, and I, I think that's that's the beauty of the marathons and especially with Dublin Bay Running Club and what Jerry Copeland and and the team have done there they've given us the opportunity not just to meet new people new perspectives but to 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 grow from each other and, and that's that's the beauty I never thought I'd be a marathon runner yeah. never thought I'd be a, a good marathon runner right? like I'm actually okay <laughs> um, but wrapping yourself around these people it just gives you gives you this sense of you know accomplishment and belief and more so you're meeting new people that we probably never get to meet before you're not going to meet them in a in a pub or a nightclub or you know you're going to go out and you're going to meet new people and um, and different walks of life as well. That, you, know? that, you, so. you describe it a really rich, you know, quality uh, experience, right? And then thank you. And I'm, I'm glad you found a way to cope with grief. And often people initiate exercise after a stressful life event. And I think you described that. But the connectivity think, you have, that's a beautiful thing. And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid, you know. So yeah. I, I love that discussion. And like, I think it, like to be transparent here, I ran for 11 years. I stopped through COVID. had a really, really tough time through COVID. Um, a lot of stress with the, with the job. And, and, and there was an awful lot of stuff. Everyone experienced, right? I'll never not run again. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, can, you can stop calling yourself a running addict because it does sound like it's a healthy regime, doesn't it? Well, it's not. It, it, it can get bad at times. And, it, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Like coming off the back of those 200 mile a week, you know, you can get, and I know I was doing 30 miles walking as well. You know, you can get into a stage where you're, you know, you're getting up at five. I was only getting five and a half hours sleep. Once that starts deteriorating, you know, uh-huh. everything can start coming up. Yeah. So you know so your you boundaries. You need to watch it. You know your you boundaries. You do, and, and sometimes you fail and you don't, you, you don't respect your boundaries, right? And, and, 
and and I suppose that's where the coaches come in, right? And that's where, yeah. he, like, the likes of Jair, and mm. he'd be watching you, and he'd be looking at your pace, and he'd be looking at your sleep, and he'd be looking at the different aspects of what's feeding into your running, and then giving you coaching advice then of, you know, where you're dropping. And most of the time, you know yourself, but it's always nice just to get somebody to kind of reassure you that you're either on the wrong track yeah. or... You yeah, know, I what think. You need to do. The, the, look, the fact that you have you have access to coaching and a, a really supportive network of friends and and uh, like that's actually perhaps the opposite of what we're we're expecting with exercise addiction. And that's you know you hit might hit some of the criteria, but you don't hit them all because this is you know can be a, well it, at different stages as yeah, well, right? Like that's it, where it I am come. now, right? Like I've made mistakes in the past where you know, and I remember you said like you know things fall down and, and run and takes over your life. It did when I was in the in the ten marathons in ten days and all of that type of stuff. You know, you're you're breaking yourself to a point where like I was physically sick after those ten marathons in ten days. I had wow. lost like an incredible amount of weight. I wasn't looking after myself through them. And then from that, like it does deteriorate. You know, your job might suffer because you're tired, you know, you're mm-hmm. getting only five hours sleep that starts dropping, you know, at, at times your relationship You, you have the sort down. of, um, the, the, the come down from it, but you're, you you know where the boundaries are, Barry, that's the most important thing. Listen, thanks a million yeah. for joining us this morning for the Dublin no Bay Run and enjoy your marathons towards 200 in the healthiest way possible. And Dr. Ty McIntyre, thanks very much for your uh, joining us as well. You've given us plenty to think about there. And uh, again, it's all about the healthy when it becomes obsessive and into addiction. I, I think you've explained it extremely well. 51551, that's the text back after this. Now, you're welcome back. I'm joined this morning by debut novelist Colin Walsh, uh, whose new novel, Cala, was the subject of a publishing bidding war, Colin, uh, which we'll talk about later. And if you like a good coming-of-age murder story, small-town claustrophobia and a cinematic style, this one is for you. Good morning to you, Colin. Good morning. How's it going, Oliver? How are, are you? Are you floating through the clouds? I'm definitely, yeah, I'm having a permanent out-of-body experience at the moment. It's very, yeah, it's very surreal, you know. It all feels like it's happening to someone else, but yeah. in a good way. You it's know? good because you're never going to be a new first-time novelist, are yeah, you? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, you've been, yeah, you've been yeah. writing forever. <laughs> um, Cal, I've I, I bigged it up enough at this stage, so we're going to leave it to you to kind of give us a, an overview of what this story is about and why people are, are so excited about it. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Cal is a story where it's set in a fictional west coast of Ireland town, a tourist town, and the story story follows a group of friends who we follow as teenagers and as adults. So as teenagers, we're with them really for like, you know, the summer of their lives. So they're passing through all these thresholds, like the first love, the first kiss, the first time getting drunk, you know, all that kind of feverish, giddy, hormonal magic. Um, and at the center of this group of friends is Kala. She's a 15-year-old girl. She is the leader of the group. She is their emotional core, their heartbeat. But the thing is that beneath every, you know, sunlit, smiling surface of this town, there's this kind of broiling darkness that's constantly threatening to swallow the characters. And as this summer goes on, the kids are getting closer and closer to that darkness. And by the end of that summer, uh, Kala goes missing. So 15 years later, uh, three of the surviving members of that original group of teenagers are thrown back together when human remains are found in the woods mm-hmm. and the past and the present begin to dramatically and violently collide. Yeah, And, and it's, it's 2003 at the, uh, when they're teenagers. Exactly. Which is an interesting time to be teenagers, yeah. sort of the, just before the dawn of mobile phones and everything like that. Yeah, is that yeah. on purpose to kind of... Yeah, I mean, like, it's, uh, it's definitely... Uh, I mean, historically, I suppose, it's 2013, uh, 2003 and then 2018. And then 2003, I mean, 
on one level as well it's just because that's it, it maps onto my own kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> my own adolescence too but also i mean every every storyteller now whether they're tv writers or novelists or whatever will will say that like smartphones and things like that have made it extremely difficult to tell like mysteries because <laughs> obviously the, all the cliffhangers that you would have had in stories of the past you could just resolve them straight away by, you know, I WhatsApp the person that like, don't go into that dark house with your man with the knife waiting for you in the kitchen. Whereas, you know, so yeah. Find anyway. my iPhone. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It solves all your problems. So yeah. And maybe AI is going to take care of a fiction. Oh no. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, this is written by a human, thank goodness. Uh, it's your first novel. There was a five, six way bidding war, they say, in the publishing industry. What, what does that mean? Um... So basically what happens is when you've when you've finished the manuscript, uh, you know, you share with your agent and your agent kind of when your agent decides that it's ready to be sent out to potential publishers, okay. they send it out to people that they think to publishers that they think will be interested. And if you if a publisher is interested, brilliant. If more than one publisher is interested, then it goes into uh, kind of an, an auction is what it's called. Okay. And then if you have a number of publishers interested, that auction kind of escalates to what would be called a bidding war, <laughs> yeah. which makes it just sound like this. Yeah, you know, people raising cards in the air and kind of, you know, <laughs> but it's not like that at all. It's much more like you're having meetings with all of the individual editors and they're talking to you about the book and their vision wow. of the book and what they think about it stressful. and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, I didn't really sleep much throughout the whole process. It was like constant headaches and like, you know, uh, yeah, but but it was in a, in a very good way. Obviously, it's the most exciting thing. It's the kind of, of thing that you yeah. dream of, you know, and uh yeah, you, you you would dream of that happening, but when you're in it, it's it again. It's kind of like what it is now, this out of body experience. But um, but basically, a lot of what it is is, you know, it's when you say a bidding war, it sounds like it's much more about money. Yeah. Um, and of course, there is the money element of it, but a lot of it is about trying to find who you have, who you feel like you have a click with. Um, mm -hmm. the editor whose vision of the book, you know, you feel like this person really gets what I'm going for. Or this person really yeah they're connecting to the book in the way that I really want people to connect to it mm -hmm. and uh yeah so that process went on for a, a couple of weeks and uh and then so yeah. you don't decide based on the money you decide no no I no I, I I decided on the basis of my my editor uh, James okay. is his name and he was yeah just after our first conversation I was like this is the guy yeah for sure and they've, they've done a great job of it because it is sort of it, like even look at the cover you're kind of going this is going to be very literary mm -hmm. and then you get into it going oh this is like a kind of a, a, a gripping crime is there kind of a is there some, some sort of mixture going on there on purpose or yeah I mean I guess like it's I, I didn't like deliberately engineers in that kind of way or whatever because you don't really know what you're going to write until you're writing it but I know that like one of the big influences on the book would have been something like Donna Tartt's The Secret History where you have this combination of the yeah the psychological richness and emotional depth of you know a more typically literary fiction but with the kind of propulsive page turning momentum of a thriller and I, I love those two sort of strands of storytelling so I really wanted to fuse them together in the book but again you can't really be too uh, you're not really in control of that as you're in the writing you know, you're kind of following the story where the story wants to go and then gradually you begin to realise, oh, there's this kind of, there's this fusion going on here, so. Uh, the setting is the West of Ireland. That's where, yeah. is that where you're from? Uh, yeah, I'm from Galway. Well, I, I, I was given out to by my cousin yesterday, so I have to say I was born in Dublin. He said, he said, you're, ah. you're, he said, you're, you're, you're rejecting your Dublin roots. So I was born in Dublin, <laughs> but 
But I grew up in Galway. We moved to Galway when I was three. Is this the point so, where yeah. someone's seen your passport and they've said, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah, said, no. he, yeah, he was, was going to like scan my birth cert and send it into you <laughs> to be like, you know, this is, uh, yeah, Dublin erasure. So uh, <laughs> you left Dublin after, you know, yeah, less yeah. than a week. Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have louth on my passport instead of Monaghan. That's because, you know, there was the, that was the closest maternity hospital. So yeah. maybe we could start a campaign. You know, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get some kind of um, like <laughs> car edge type thing stuck onto us. Uh, so you're a Galway fella, all right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it feels like Galway. I mean, I, it's called Kinloch. Yeah. And I, you know, there's things like the Widow's Arch, which I'm immediately reading as Spanish Arch. There's a square, yeah. uh, which I immediately see as uh, Air Square. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it Galway? It No, it isn't Galway, but it is, you know, obviously anyone who's familiar with Galway will definitely see the reference points uh, for different mm. places. Um but actually the influence, uh, one of the influences that I had about like inventing my own place is just, you know, people like Stephen King would have done this with Derry, for example, where a lot of his stories yeah. are set. It's a fictionalization of where he's from in Maine. But one of the influences for me was I saw a painting a few years ago by uh, the painter Sheila and he had done a painting of Vienna. Um, but if you're, I, I was with someone who was from Vienna and they were saying what's interesting about this picture is that it's all wrong. Um, all the buildings, uh, all the locations are scrambled. So something that belongs on the north side of the city is next to something that's in this in the west. Okay. That building should be bigger, but it's smaller than that one. And it, as a as an actual map of Vienna, it makes no sense. But he said that what the painting is is it's a kind of it's a representation of the Vienna that lives in his heart. So it's all the places that had emotional connections for him that he's kind of put them together in this collage, and that's like the Vienna that lives within him right and in a sense I think that was sort of how I built this fictional town of Kinloch was I was kind of collaging all these different places from throughout my life um, in order to serve the story of course you that know? makes sense because the Warren which is the kind of country roads outside that, that yeah. don't exist right outside Galway because we know it's all roundabouts yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is increasingly it? So, so, so. Kinloch, but you couldn't call it Galway you not call it Galway and have your own kind of mangled version of Galway no because I like, wonder about authors that's, my, that's why I'm asking I don't yeah, want to yeah, yeah. this particular point no, why, why don't you call it Galway I think it's because well it's just it's first it's a smaller place than Galway uh, like like Kinloch is, it, it's more rural than Galway. Um, it is, you know, I, I guess I was in Westport uh, over Christmas. Well, I hadn't been in Westport since I was a kid. And when I was there, I was like, oh, like this is kind of the, it, in terms of the scale and the fact that it's very popular with tourists and things like that. I was like, oh, this is actually kind of a closer correlate to the Kinloch that's, that's in the a book, good you know. Point. Yeah, um, yeah. Because Galway is, yeah, obviously sprawling. It, it's, it's sprawling, you know. Um, but also it's because if you if you have your own setting, you're giving yourself a lot of creative permission then to do certain things geographically and things like that. Whereas if if I'd set something in Galway, you'd have someone being like, well, you can't really get from that street <laughs> to that street in 10 mean, minutes, yeah, you yeah. know, so yeah. I, you know, I didn't need, I the didn't need to do that. mystery solvers. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, he's got yeah, this yeah, yeah. Um, did you write it in Galway? No, no, um, I wrote it uh, mostly in Belgium because, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm based in Belgium, uh, have been for the last few years. So, uh, yeah, so I, I wrote it. Uh, I mean, I've been working on it for years, you know, um, yeah. but um, primarily writing it uh, based in Belgium. But, um, yeah, does you know. That, does that make a difference when you're writing about home? Um, I think so. I think, like, for me, anyway, uh, it's... it. 
I think like something that's quite common for a lot of writers, I think, is that on some level, you're always a little bit outside the experience of where you are. You're always yeah. holding yourself a bit back and kind of observing things. And I think for me, as someone who's living outside of Ireland, it makes it easier for me to write about Ireland by not being there. It's like you're, it's easier to put a frame on something when you're not in immersed in it. Do you yes, know what I mean? Yes. Um, all of which sounds very abstract, but like it is easier for me to write about Ireland from outside. Yeah, um, that makes sense. It I just think. makes it easier to put a shape yeah, on. It's like a safer space as well that you're kind of writing about home. Yeah, the, the characters then, these yeah. teenagers. Did you know these teenagers? Are they kind of compounds of people you you know? It's no, <laughs> like I mean, yeah. I mean, like on t- I definitely know them in the sense that I really, I really know the characters super well. Like they're very real to me. But it's not like um, I wasn't kind of combining people from real life it's not based on any particular people from my life at all um mm-hmm. there are no kind of you, it doesn't map on i mean there are certain books particularly now like with you know there's a type of book autofiction which is very much uh, where someone kind of just fictionalizes their autobiographical material and yeah. my father in the book is my father in my life and stuff but that isn't that is not the case in this um because basically fiction is much it's much richer and broader than the self for me uh, yeah. as a writer and it's not that I I wasn't writing the book about myself or about people I know um, it's more I'm, I'm writing the book for the reader you know and what's been really nice about this is that you know I've had people in like their 60s and people in their 20s uh, talking about how like they recognize themselves in these kids yeah um, because and, we and were recognize all... also other people that we exactly. know the yeah, Kala yeah. character who is very very richly drawn mm-hmm. through the eyes of all the other characters mm. is like it, it feels like someone that we all like someone that we know yeah you know, or, or I don't want to say I don't want to say the type of girl that we know do you know but there's a darkness to her there's like a confidence that sort of she, she feels so damaged that she has this weird confidence about her does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely and I think that was something that I was very deliberately trying to do with the way that the book is structured so like just for like for for people listening the the book is narrated by three characters Mm -hmm. um there's Helen Joe and Mush and all three of them have a different type of relationship to Kala so Helen's like Kala's best friend uh Joe is Kala's boyfriend and Mush is Kala's confidant um and the three of them have different perspectives on Kala and what I wanted to do with the book, basically, um, this was actually influenced by uh, an essay uh, about Frank Sinatra from the 60s. I don't know if you've uh, really? heard it. There's an essay by a guy, Gay Talese. He wrote an essay about Frank Sinatra in the 60s. And basically, he was trying to interview Frank Sinatra. And everyone in Sinatra's entourage kept saying, oh, no, Mr. Sinatra has a cold. So he was like trying to get to him from all these angles. He was talking to Sinatra's bodyguard. He was talking to the person who looked after Sinatra's toupee. He was mm-hmm. talking to Sinatra's mother. And he couldn't get close to him. And then he gradually realized, wait, this is the story. If I just collage all of the voices, all of these different conflicting uh-huh. perspectives about Sinatra, I'm going to get a much richer, multidimensional version of Sinatra than I would if I just had a direct line to him. And in a way, Kala is like the Sinatra of the novel. She is the she is the heart of everything. Everything revolves around her. But you're getting these slightly contradictory perspectives on her from the different characters and my hope is that those kind of gaps in the versions of Kali you're getting between the characters 
will leave a space for the reader to enter the book and form their own idea of who Kala is and form yeah. their own relationship to Kala. So she's like the cool, damaged kid in the in a country town, isn't she? She's you know she's definitely she's very charismatic. Um, you know, and and whether she's a kind of charismatic presence or an enigmatic absence, which she is uh, as adults mm. uh, when when the characters are adults, um, she is. She's she's like the sun conducting the planets of the book, if you know what I mean. It's interesting that you're away in Belgium because obviously we when we fast forward the fifteen years, there are people coming back. Uh, mm. Helen comes back from Canada. She's she's a journalist and a writer, and this this idea and it, it, there's an Irish kind of concept, isn't that? Sometimes I think subliminally we kind of almost travel just so we can talk about it when we go home. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. All yeah. eventually coming home. Absolutely. I mean, like, uh, it's definitely it's a classic thing in 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 Irish storytelling in general. You know, the homecoming and the idea of you know you can never you can never really go home if you know what I mean. Mm. Because obviously, by the time you come home, home has changed. You have changed. There's a different relationship has to be formed there. But you know, I do think like that's something that. I wasn't consciously doing that in the book, but of course there is this sense of, particularly for Helen and Joe, that they're coming back to a place that they have very complicated relationship to and each of them are searching for different things by coming home. And of course the events of the book are going to force them to confront different things in the past that maybe they've been trying to escape. But I think that, you know, we were talking about, you know, teenagers in 2003, adults in 2018. I think generationally certainly among my peer group at least a lot of people did emigrate when mm. the economic crash happened that really kind of that kind of shattered a lot of my friend group and kind of scattered everybody all over the place so you know yeah. australia canada you know everywhere so um that is something that i would definitely have in common with a lot of my friends is that all of us are kind of been scattered since mm. you know yeah since since our early adulthood almost the um, homecoming is is quite difficult when everyone's scattered around the place yeah it's always it's always a bit kind of fragmented and whatever you know but that's kind of i think like every family in the country will probably uh ha be able to relate to that in some sense because everyone has the person who left or the people who left and you know it is just a classic thing that you're you know you're never you're never the only one at the departures lounge uh, in Dublin airport, you know, um, but that's kind of, that's part of it. But, you know, I think obviously there can be a melancholy to that as well. But I remember chatting to a friend of mine who he's a classic example of this. He left Ireland, moved to Germany. Then he was in, you know, England. Then he was back in Germany, you know, and he was talking to me about how in Ireland, there's always a, there's a kind of melancholy about the, the way that people have historically had to emigrate over the years. Yeah. And of course, that's a very true thing. It's a painful thing. I think every family in the country can relate to that. But he was talking about, he, he talked about it in a way that I'd never heard anyone kind of frame it before, where he was saying that he was working in England for a while and he was doing a thing where he was, he was making a documentary about people in Salford, uh, so near Manchester, mm -hmm. and very deprived uh, part of the place. And he's talking to people about, you know, why, why don't you, why don't you leave? Like, why, yeah. why haven't you emigrated or whatever? And they were like, well, no way. I mean, England's the greatest country in the world. So like, I'd never do that. <laughs> and he's, and he said that, like, he said that the way that he thought about it was that in Ireland, we don't have that, but not in a way of like denigrating Ireland, but more like, we've learned to respect ourselves as people enough to be like, I want, it? yeah, like I, I want more from life than, than what I'm getting at the moment. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out and find it. Whereas a lot of the time, if you're in a place like, you know, a major power like France or the States or the UK, 
a lot of the time you've completely sort of dr- drunk the Kool-Aid and decided, well, it can't be any better anywhere else. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be happy. Leaving is never even in the Yeah, it's not even in the conversation. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. I am fascinated by the, the generation you're talking about and they're in the book because your teenagers is the rise of the Celtic tiger. And by the time yeah. you finish education, enter your professional life, it's total austerity. And there's only one uh, route to life, which seems to be just getting out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but you have the characters in the book as well who are still, who stay there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how do they fare? <laughs> Um, well, Mush uh, is the, from the group of friends, he is the, the one who stays. And, you know, in many sense, like he, he anchors the book in certain ways, mm-hmm. um, where, whether it's geographically, he's anchoring everyone back to the, to the place. He's, he anchors everyone to Kinloch, but also emotionally, I think, you know, he really is in, in some ways, he's, he's the heart of this group of friends. Um, and he, he has stayed in, in Kinloch, but what you would see is, with Mush, for example, um, the horizons of his world have shrunk dramatically since he was a teenager. So when he's when he's a teenager with this group of friends, with Kala in particular, he's very emboldened by his friends. He's uh, he's adventurous. He's kind of getting up to all sorts of mischief. But when we meet him as an adult at the beginning of the book, you know, you're, you're really meeting someone who's who's quite broken. He's living a quasi reclusive sort of life. You know, he works yeah. in his mother's cafe gets up in the morning, does the work, has a few cans, goes to bed. You really get the sense that he hasn't really left this cafe for years, you know. It's a miserable uh, play. The texts coming in are, the people are fascinated, listening in fascination to Colin as a book lover and a former neighbour, says Teresa Lynch in County Galway. Oh, hey, Lynch. how's it going? Well, <laughs> <laughs> very good. And thanks, Colin, for putting Kinloch County Leitrim on the map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I was waiting for, yeah, I didn't realise there was a Kinloch and I was told very late in the day and I was like, oh God, I'm going to be up in some defamation case or something. <laughs> You're going to have to tour that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Categorically, this yeah. is not the place it's described. Yeah, yeah, it is um, not Kinloch and Leitrim. It is not Kinloch and Leitrim. I it's promise. called Cala, Colin it's been an absolute pleasure and I, I believe there, there there may be plans to turn it into um, uh, something on the screen at some point uh, yeah yeah, because it yeah. feels cinematic and it would lend itself well yeah, would you be writing yeah. the screenplay if it, if I'm it, working on the yeah the oh, screenplays at the moment it's and happening? it's with uh, yeah it's with um, the people who adapted Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hole uh, so uh, not bad company them, so, to be yeah I mean <laughs> again like just out of body experience you know but yeah it's great that's it. But Kala is the book. That's the novel. Get your hands on that. Um, first of all, loads of praise there in the back. You've got everyone there. Lisa McInerney, Roddy Doyle, Kevin Barry and Donald Ryan praising it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, continue to float along <laughs> yeah, all the way to go and up to Kinloch <laughs> and back to Belgium. And the best of luck with it. We'll take a quick break. Welcome back. Uh, 51551, that's our text number on post cassettes. That's my memory of it, but it's all about cassette tapes that were posted from here to abroad to emigrants. And it's a period of 70s and 80s. Austin Kenny is yes. in studio with us. This is the era we're talking about, is it, Austin? Yeah, hi, Oliver. Thanks for having an me on. Archivist, I should say, Austin Kenny. So you've got an expertise in this particular area. Well, I don't know, I'm an expert at anything yet, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was, I was, uh, I was doing a tidy up and uh, we came across. Tidy up my mum's house, which is always kind of messy, so uh, still needs tidying up. But um, we, we we came across these old tapes. Um, ones were kind of a lot of them weren't labelled, but you could tell they looked old. Oh yeah, and it was in amongst a, a do the Bart do the Bart man tape. I remember one when we had our year, yeah. and a Simpsons sing the blues was 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 another one. And there was an RTE uh, soundtracks tape. I remember as well of like they had like the Sunday game soundtrack and stuff we had on tape and, and a lingophone tape. And then I found this tape uh, with, with uh, like kind of all these kind of very 70s looking orange orange and brown colours oh yeah and then I kind of dug a bit deeper and I saw ones with saying like Brisbane 77 and stuff and I played a few of them and 
Um, I presume when you're in archives, you have the technology to play these ancient. Oh, this was before <laughs> actually. This was, I'm only so I'm, I'm working in RT archives about two and a half years. But oh, this was, right. The so actual original doc was made when I was in college about ten years ago. I see. I returned to college and um, I was making. Yeah, so it wasn't a plan for a doc when I was looking for that, but I knew. It was a. It was. I knew. I knew needed something kind of to. What did you discover in these tapes when you started listening to them? So um, yeah, I was listening and I kind of just. Uh, I had a feeling what I would discover when I saw a Brisbane seventy seven written on it, um, because yeah. I knew Mum and Dad had, had gone to uh, Australia in the late seventies and came back in the early eighties. Um, but it was just. It was still shocked to hear to hear um, the voices of people who had gone since people, some of who I'd never met, some I hadn't met since I was. In twenty years, say you know my granny and stuff like that, and oh, yeah. and just hearing yeah mum and dad's voice talking about how things were so different, well thirty years previous, you know. Wh- time. Where had they emigrated from in the country? They so my mum is Claire and uh, near near Liston and Varna, and uh, and dad is a uh, um, Bannerher on the Shannon and Offaly. Yeah, um, proud so, Offaly place. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and having a whole lot to be proud of at the moment, but uh, in sports voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, now very proud down there, um, and uh, so so that was it. It was uh, it was uh, we we kind of um we, we like it was kind of it was communicating between dad's family and, and mom and dad basically. You know, back back the tapes were back, going back to there. So Offaly was chatting to Australia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, because they're not just conversations, there's bits of everything, is there in the, in the tapes? Yeah, that's it. Like so, there's um, it's it's kind of like it it started off, I suppose. Um, as a replacement for a phone call, I think you know, and then and then uh, um, it, it kind of t- it's quickly turned into people would have a few drinks. I suppose you'd feel a bit more confident about singing a song, <laughs> you know, as you would, you know, performing a party piece. You'd want to have a couple of drinks, and and then it would, it would happen that that people would knock in on the way home from either from the pub or just maybe up the road to call in and say hello, and they'd come in and add an extra song to it, and they'd say, "Oh, this is somebody such and such from down the road. Yeah. You, you, you'll know their parents, you'll know their son, or something like that." And they'd come in and do a song or a party piece as well, or, or GEA games as well. Dad was a big um, uh, uh, GEA fan, to the and of course there was no chance of getting results in any, oh, any exactly. other way, was there? No, nothing. There was no. There was no way you'd get like. RT radio or, or, or TV back then, you know where they were shown. Would a match have fitted on a tape? Um, second half, maybe. <laughs> no, I think you got, I think there were ninety minute tapes. I oh, think really? I think I think there's a Cork Wexford game. There was definitely two games. I think one was cut off. The Cork Wexford game, I think, was of the all around final seventy eight. I think it was. Um, someone probably could tell, tell me I'm wrong there, but yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think I think that was the full game on it. Yeah, we have a uh, we have a clip, and it's kind of like a voice note. It's like a WhatsApp voice note, but for, this is from what, what are we talking about? It's Frank's mother. So explain. So Frank is, yeah, so this would be seventy seven or seventy eight. So Frank is your dad. Yeah, and this is his mum. Yeah, sending a message back from from Banner. From Banner, yeah, yeah, back to Australia. Okay, let's have a listen. This is Mam. Hope you are both well. We're soon at the new potatoes. Pity you're not here to enjoy them. Are you still as fond of potatoes as ever, Frank? You used to love them hot or cold, and still you didn't put up the weight. Not like the rest of us. We have very dull weather here presently, and we have an awful lot of new houses and new people. Everyone is very strange. <laughs> All the essentials covered there, yeah, the spuds, yeah. the weather, yeah. and uh, strange people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's just mad to think that how, how, how strange... Banner could have been then in seventy seven, you know, compared yeah. to the development since, you know, you know, just everything being built and I suppose we've a lot more 
um, immigration into Ireland since then. You know, and it's hard to imagine how much how strange it could have been then. But obviously, things were always changing. You know, given how stilted you kind of see Irish people chatting. Uh, you know, uh, how media shy we were. She she puts in a fairly conversational tone there. I know she? that's what shocked me. Yeah, because I I I've, I I I love I love a voice note. I love a WhatsApp voice note myself. But <laughs> I know a lot of my friends don't. They're just no. away from it and they go to text you back. And so these are people who've grown up with with, with kind of in the techno, technological generation and all that. Yeah. But people years ago, I thought, yeah, no, it surprised me as well. Uh, the tapes uh, there was letters with them because phone calls were uh, were difficult to organise uh, so they used these tapes and letters to kind of organise actual phone calls yeah so they were normal I, I see the tapes I suppose were probably more few and far between than a letter the letters were maybe if you, if you sent eight letters a year you might send three tapes I suppose maybe maybe someone's birthday maybe Easter and Christmas something like that I think you know yeah. Um, but yeah so letters were going along too and, and uh, yeah so, so you'd send a letter to kind of say or yeah, generally a letter to say we're going to call. So there was a, there was one or two phones available. There was a post or a phone box down the end of the town, and that was a good mile or two away. And then there was a, there's a lady, an older lady up the road had a phone as well in her house. Um, oh so, right, yeah, yeah. So she, you could ring her, but then it was very hard for her to get down in time to tell you that there was a call <laughs> before you know. So it all had to be very well organised. You have to say I'm going to ring at four p.m. on the twenty fifth of June or something like that, and you'd be ready for that call. And, and it would it would just happen, wouldn't it? It was just you just organised it. It's just hard to remember how yeah. we actually organised conversations. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, uh, all those all those years ago. Uh, the, you made the documentary, so you went to college. Yeah, so I, I went to college originally in 2001, but I went back to repeat something and I, I was back there again in 2013. And uh, yeah, so I made it then. And um, it was something I, I really enjoyed making at the time. Obviously, with college, the resources are tight. Yeah, I always think you could do it a bit better. And there was things I would like to have developed more. And But I was generally happy enough with it. But I often thought it could be something that would make a, a more of a, a, a national reach. Well, I won't say global yeah. reach, but a national reach. Because my family... They were, wouldn't have been the most uh, technological advanced, still aren't, and we wouldn't be at the at, at, at the hub of cultural innovation. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say, but I know some families out there were always kind of say, you know, would have always been taping things or being the first people yeah. to grab stuff. So I thought if we had this, surely someone else out there has that kind of. Well, course. especially because they they obviously knew there were value enough to keep them. Yeah. For forty plus years, um, we have a text in here. I used to look forward to receiving tapes from my wife and children when I was serving with the United Nations in South Lebanon in nineteen ninety four. They would record. My my favourite programmes from the cassette radio player and intersperse them with personal messages, the kids singing to their daddy and so on. It was a great treat which brightened up the lengthy periods of missing the family, says Michael Martin in Cove. Well, yeah. So, and then he kind of demonstrates how this goes on into the 90s because yeah. you know, you're obviously dealing with the 70s because it was yeah. uh, the emigration, but uh, yeah. we're still taping stuff. I, like I suppose, yeah, that's, I can, uh, yeah. I suppose, you'd, you'd, like... I'd well believe it because even when I like I don't like I was born in '83, but I don't remember the the, the '80s obviously so much. But the '90s, I remember there was a lot of places down down my aunties where we did. She, but she still doesn't have a have a have a house phone. She has, she have the mobile now, but she never really did. So I remember the, I, I can well believe that a lot of the rural the places certainly gone back wouldn't have wouldn't have been contacted by phone even in the '90s. So you, you made the the documentary in college, and you want to revisit it now, don't you? So you're shouting out to the people out there. That's it, yeah. Is there anybody like uh, like Michael? Just say Michael Martin. Was what you say? Michael Martin. Yeah, Cove. yeah, yep. yeah. Like like Michael that that, that have that has um, uh, footage like that, either radio or audio, um, or, or just the story to tell. Even particular or particularly the angle because there has been a lot of um emigration programs made. I suppose you know yeah. the particular ang- particular angle angle I'm going is that it's it's kind of um it, it's it's kind of from a time before uh, an era before telephone when you when you had these the archive the audio sound. Or, or video archive but if there was somebody who had a good story and letters to back it up and photographs 
you know, it'd be nice to hear from them as well. And it's, you know? is it audio and video? Is that what you're? Yeah, you're audio and video. So it was audio basically was 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 what I used mine off. But I, I've I've had contact from some people who've said they've got videotape as well, Super Eight okay. footage from from that time as well, and that'd definitely help. For for it's going to be we intended to be a video a TV programme so that would definitely help the, the the story along and your doc is on YouTube so people can actually look and see what. yeah if you search tape me away from home tape, tape me away from home and it has little clips we'll play a clip this was coming from Australia so someone's singing is it from Australia yeah we Back think this now was, was, was another banner man Sean Madden who had been the same year as, as dad in school Brisbane 1978 to the dusty outback, I was Matilda all over. Then in 1915, my country said, son, give over your rambling, there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat, and they gave me a gun, and they sent me away to the <sighs> There's a bit of a hum on it, but it has, uh, it has a certain kind of uh, beauty to it, doesn't it? That yeah. that tape sound. Yeah, yeah, and actually, considering there's probably a good bit of drink taken at times, it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty well in tune as well. These the, the people who do sing, yeah. you know, um, they're they're decent singers. I can imagine if that was recorded at a party now that I was at, they wouldn't sound as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and because um, the tape recorders, for I remember, even in the nineties, were kind of a little bit rubbish, weren't they? So yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe we thought they were rubbish, but it has this nice sort of base That's to it. it That's it. it. Maybe the home we we we, we would have hated then. Is what we're liking now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another text here. A great story. We have similar tapes of a reunion in our house in County Galway for an aunt who was a nun in Texas. All the cousins and so on with party pieces and much conversation. I think even party pieces is, yeah. is from this era, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember being Nobody made. has a party piece anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, even back in, when I was seven or eight, I, I didn't have one, but I was still made to do something. <laughs> you know, I remember one cousin. My cousin Colin always did a good party piece. He's probably listening now. We 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 were always just trying to emulate him and go and stand there and say something. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tape me with you, you invite people and how they can contact you with their tapes and so on. And yeah. So it, it it's ta- like like the like the film on on YouTube. It's tape with a P. Tape me away from home at gmail.com. Okay, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> oh, I hope so. The more the better, the better, and and like the simpler stories, the better. You know because. I suppose most people live kind of simple enough lives that resonate. So simpler stories that resonate with 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 with, with the well, audience. People think, oh, should nobody be interested in this? But it's an absolute essential bit of social history, isn't it? That's it. That's what I'm saying. The simpler stories, but new potatoes, stuff like that. And there was my brother was born over there, some newborn babies. Anything, anything that that kind of just gives a bit of emotion yeah. back, and, and that's what I'm Brilliant. looking for. Austin Kenny, thanks a million. Tape me Thank away you. from home at gmail.com. 